Okay, round two. Name something that's not boring. A laundry? Ooh, a book club. Computer solitaire, huh? Ah, oh, sorry. We were looking for Chumba Casino. That's right. Chumbacasino.com has over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. Chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network, and I'd like to tell you that we have a new and improved website. It has two new features that we think you'll love. One of them is a vastly improved search engine so that when you type in keywords, you'll get a bunch of episodes really quick. The other is the ability to create a listener account. And in that listener account, you can save episodes for later listening. So you can create a kind of listening list. We think these features are neat and we think you'll enjoy them. Please visit the site today. Hello, everyone, and welcome back to New Books and Christian Studies, a channel on the New Books Network podcast. I'm your host, Crawford Gribben. Today, my guest is Joel Elliott Slotkin, a professor of English at Towson University, Maryland, USA. We're going to be talking to Joel about his new book, Sinister Aesthetics, The Appeal of Evil in Early Modern Literature, just published by Paul Grave. Joel, congratulations on the book and welcome to the show. Oh, thank you very much for having me. It's a pleasure to be here. It's great. It's great to have you. Can you tell us something about the background to this book? How did you develop the idea and how did you begin work on the project? Yeah, sure. So uh, the book began as my dissertation, um, and my dissertation began with a question about Milton's Paradise Lost that will probably be familiar to anyone who studied the poem in college, um, namely, why, in a book that opens by declaring its intentions to justify the ways of God to man, does Satan sometimes feel like the most interesting or the most attractive character? This is what Miltonists call the Satan problem, and It's still important to the book I ended up writing, although the primary focus of the book has shifted somewhat. My dissertation took a long time to finish, partly because of the massive amount of critical commentary on the Satan problem that I had to account for. And once it was finished, I thought uh, the dissertation was fairly close to being a publishable book, but it ended up being well over a decade before it was truly finished. In some ways, the final product is still very similar to the original dissertation that I wrote. So in a sense, I feel like I was right that it was almost a book, but it still ended up being a lot of work to get it published. Um, I added a fairly complex chapter that required a lot of new research. Uh, I combined two shorter chapters into a single one, added an epilogue, but uh, really just also spent a lot of time honing my existing material highlighting and clarifying the argument, filling gaps in my research, making sure the conceptual framework was consistent, and then, of course, shopping the idea to publishers. And, of course, during that time, I also, you know, moved across the country, started a tenure-track job, got tenure using other publications, uh, got married, and started a family. Well, it sounds like you've been really busy. I mean, this is a mammoth book, isn't it, in terms of the coverage you have uh, the historical coverage, it, I mean, it extends over a couple of centuries, really, in some detail, but also in, in the breadth of historical and literary reference that you have here. Can you talk us through the contents page? Just how, how capacious is this project exactly? So the project is, I, I tried to keep a historical focus on the early modern period in England, which is to say, you know, I'm really looking at kind of from the late 1500s 
to the late 1600s. Uh, but I'm also hoping that it might potentially have useful implications for people working in other fields. Uh, the basic concept of sinister aesthetics, I think, is something that could be applied, you know, transhistorically uh, to forms of art other than the literary. Uh, and so, but but I'm not, you know, that's not kind of the part of the argument that I'm banking on. That's something that I, I hope people might be able to use more broadly. But but certainly even just thinking about, uh, yeah, the scope within the early modern period, it is pretty large. And that was one of the things that would, it was really hard to kind of get a grip on all that material. So you, you begin with Sydney, you think about Tassel, Spencer, um, Shakespeare, yes. Richard III. Uh, we've got um, mm-hmm. a, a, long, a long chapter in popular print from 1560 yes. to 1675, Obviously, Paradise Lost is there very heavily so uh, uh, in the last third of the book, I suppose. Um, you, you, you mentioned, Joel, that, that you want this to be quite historically specific, although, as you've also observed, its implications are transhistorical. Uh, yeah. are, are you a new historicist? That's something you think about in the book as well, isn't it? I definitely am very sort of sympathetic to new historicism and have found it very helpful, and I think it's been... Uh, very beneficial for the field, historicizing the study of literature, rehistoricizing the study of literature in the way that they did, um, I think just made the criticism a lot more responsible. And, you know, for me, it was also part of a turn away from a kind of theory that I found very unintelligible, frankly. <laughs> um, sure. But, but uh, I'm not totally a new historicist in that a lot of new historicists want to uh, look past aesthetics to the networks of power that kind of undergird, uh, you know, literature. And I want to sort of refocus attention on the aesthetic and on the affective, which is something that a lot of scholars are doing now. Um, it was a very unpopular idea when I was in grad school, but now it's becoming quite popular. Um, and so I feel that's part of a kind of revision of new historicism. But I want to, you know, I want to respect that kind of historicizing impulse because I do think it's really important to embed discussions of aesthetic and affect in the historical context and not just return to some sort of abstract, you know, new critical idea of beauty. Yeah. I mean, I think that's one of the most powerful things in this book for me is the way in which you historicize both ideas of beauty and ideas of of ugliness and even ideas of the sinister. And uh, how how you emphasize that these are quite specific in different historical uh, periods or or specific to different historical periods. strikes me as I read the book, uh, Joel, which is a brilliant book, that another very important thing that you do uh, in terms of your background in historicism as you move away from that or perhaps think through some of its claims is that you take religion and also specifically theology seriously in a way that not many new historicist critics would have done I think up to this point yeah so it was really important to me to take theology seriously in the book uh, but also to make the point that religion is about more than just theology um that there is this other component to religion, which, um, as I mentioned in the book, Perry Miller refers to as piety, Hmm. um, and he describes it as a kind of religious sensibility that includes aesthetic sensibilities. Um, 
that is, believers not only adhere to a set of logical propositions about God, they also, you know, have to have feelings about God and they have to imagine God in uh, in particular ways. Um, and that's where uh, literature and poetry come in. So uh, the book is really addressing two fundamental problems, uh, <clears throat> and they're both they're both problems of evil. Um, the first one is the literary problem of evil, which is that um, Renaissance theories of poetry emphasize that literature has a responsibility to morally improve its audience. Hmm. Uh, the Renaissance theorists are pretty consistent about that. But on the other hand, Renaissance writers are responsible for some of the most compelling and attractive literary representations of evil ever produced. Yeah. Um, and the, the two that I spend the most time on in the book are Shakespeare's Richard III and Milton's Satan. Yeah. Um, so that's the, that's the literary problem of evil. The theological problem of evil is, uh, this is a very old problem, uh, but it's how do we reconcile the idea of an omnipotent, omniscient, and totally benevolent God with a universe that seems to contain quite a lot of evil and suffering. Yeah. This is a fundamental problem with monotheism that was first articulated even before Christianity. But in early modern England, you have you know, a bunch of civil wars going on during the period that are at least partly about religion. And so the question takes on a new urgency. And one of the points that I want to make about this is that the reason why the problem of evil sticks around is not that it's a challenging logical conundrum, uh, but that it represents an affective problem and it needs an aesthetic solution. Um, what I mean by that is that um, there have been plenty of theologians who have offered, a, you know, what one might call a morally or logically consistent explanation for why human beings might deserve to have bad things happen to them. Um, but those explanations have not stuck. Um, and the reason they haven't stuck, I think, is has to do with aesthetics. It has to do with the form uh, that God's punishments take, which is often sort of appalling, hideous, uh, seemingly unnecessarily cruel. And even if we can accept the idea that we morally deserve for bad things to happen, there is something disturbing about the aesthetic sensibilities of uh, a being who would craft those punishments well, that, that's fascinating, Joel. So in some ways, it's, it strikes me as odd that as I read early modern biblical commentators, for example, whenever they discuss the fall narrative in Genesis 3, they're, they're often very clear at spotting what they think are the intellectual effects of the fall. But very rarely do they ever comment on the aesthetic implications of the fall. And of course, one of the things that Eve does in the Genesis 3 story is to look at the forbidden fruit, and crucially, to see that it looks good. So there's a kind of an aesthetic judgment built into the the, the the very premise of whatever failure she represents in that place. But as we as we read, for example, Richard III or Paradise Lost, both of which you just mentioned, how do we know that we are responding with the right kind of revulsion that the authors want? This kind of fascinated revulsion you've described. How do we know that that we're not imposing our later preconceptions of what's attractive or what's not attractive onto those texts? Yeah, that's a very difficult question, and it's one that I struggled with. 
Um, and it's something that I try to work out in uh, my second chapter, the first chapter after the intro, uh, actually by looking at Spencer's Fairy Queen. Um, the Fairy Queen contains a number of rather disgusting monsters, and I use Spencer as a test case for how we decide when a representation of evil is potentially appealing and when it's just simply repulsive. And the answer to that question is partly subjective. Different readers are going to have different reactions, and we can't control or predict that, and we can't really talk about those by looking at the text itself. But we can look at how the text frames these hideous monsters, and we can come to some conclusions about what responses the text might be making more available or less available to readers. Right. Right. So, um, so, 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 for, so when, when, when Spencer talks about fashioning a gentleman, uh, what, what, one of the one of the parts of the equipment of that a gentleman needs is an aesthetic toolkit. So, how how, how does Spencer take us through that idea in in, in the Fairy Queen uh, of, of developing that toolkit of aesthetics? So, the first thing that Spencer gives us when we dive into the Fairy Queen is an encounter between the protagonist of Book One, the Red Cross Knight, and the monster Error, who is a half-woman, half-serpent, who vomits chunks of rotting flesh, pamphlets, deformed toads, and swarms of her own monstrous children at the protagonist. So I'm tempted to After ask... Error, <laughs> I'm tempted to ask, how do we know Spencer doesn't think that's attractive, but of course that's facetious. <laughs> right. Well, I I would argue that he does think it's attractive. <laughs> um, all of these details can be subsumed into a very wholesome religious allegory, uh, and centuries worth of Fairy Queen editors have labored to do just that. And they're not wrong, but I don't think Spencer could have written this episode in quite the way that he did unless he took some pleasure in deformed toad vomit for its own sake. <laughs> I wonder if that's ever crept into Spencer biography. I don't know. I have not done a thorough survey of Spencer biographies. <laughs> I mean, I feel like in the, you know, certainly before the 20th century, the Fairy Queen was thought of as a rather pretty text and people tended to kind of ignore actually how disgusting it is. Hmm. Um, but when I say disgusting, I, I don't actually think that Spencer wants us to be disgusted in the way that we sometimes mean that term. So uh, one of the early modern literary theorists I look at is Sir Philip Sidney, who writes uh, The Defense of Poesy, which is one of the more important works of literary theory from the English Renaissance. And Sidney mostly claims that poets should make evil unattractive so that people will avoid it. Mm. So literary representations of evil for Sydney are supposed to function as a kind of aversion therapy. Hmm. Um, but the problem with that is that if a reader is truly that disgusted with the images of evil that you're creating, there is a strong risk that they're going to put the book down. Right. And no author really wants that. Right. Um, and what I think Spencer is doing and what I try to demonstrate that he's doing through the sort of details of my close reading is how Spencer frames the text and frames the presentation of monsters like error in such a way as to encourage the reader to have fun with it rather than simply to be disgusted. That's a, 
there's something kind of glorious about the excess of it um, that he wants us to revel in and that he, I mean, I think it would have been very hard for him to write the poem if he was genuinely genuinely disgusted by all of this stuff that he was saying. Hmm. I don't know about you, but I'm very busy and I don't have a lot of time to cook. That's why I subscribe to Factor. Eating better is easy with Factor's delicious, ready-to-eat meals. Every fresh, never-frozen meal is chef-crafted, dietitian-approved, and ready to go in just two minutes. You'll have over 35 different options to choose from every week, including Calorie Smart, Protein Plus, and Keto. These are two-minute meals. Factor meals are ready to eat in heat, so there's no prepping, cooking, or cleanup needed. They're flexible for your schedule. Get as much or as little as you need by choosing your meals every week. Factor is the perfect solution if you're looking for fast premium options with no cooking required. Sign up and save. We've done the math, and this is important. Factor is less expensive than takeout, and every meal is dietitian approved to be nutritious and delicious. Head to factormeals.com slash nbn50 and use code nbn50 to get 50% off. That's code nbn50 at factormeals.com slash nbn50 to get 50% off. So you, you give us a lot of um, very helpful guidance as to how we should approach Fairy Queen in relation to this problem of sinister aesthetics that you describe. Uh, a central part of the book is really focused in that period in the 1580s and 1590s with Ked, Spanish tragedy, uh, Marlowe, etc. What's going on in that period? And is there any sense that we can know why in that period creative writers are so interested in this question? That's a really hard question to answer, and I'm I'm not entirely sure. I feel like a lot of the historical explanations I could come up with, you could also come up with similar explanations for why it might be happening in other periods, and it's always dangerous to claim that the historical period that you work on is unique. Sure. Uh, you know, because, uh, but, I mean, certainly there was a lot of... Uh, political and religious uncertainty and conflict. Um, and so that may have been part of the issue. Uh, the, the history of attractive villains in Renaissance drama owes a lot to the medieval tradition of the vice character in, in morality plays, which has been, you know, well studied for several decades now, but, but that is, uh, that is an important element that feeds into this. This is a, this is a part of the sort of, native dramatic tradition that was kind of central to the experience of medieval drama and and carried over into uh, Renaissance drama. Hmm. So one of the principal texts you look at in that earlier period is, as we've just mentioned, Richard III. How does Shakespeare yeah. develop the character of Richard III to address this question of sinister aesthetics? So Richard III is... Uh, one of the reasons I picked him is because he's an early model for the kind of attractive villain that Shakespeare and other dramatists would be exploiting throughout the period. Um, and the play is a, is a catalog of different kinds of sinister aesthetics, but also it's notably self-reflective about Richard's appeal as an interpretive problem. That is, Richard is depicted as, as ugly and evil. He's morally, should be morally and aesthetically unattractive, and yet... Uh, other characters and, and also I would argue audiences have mm. found him to be very attractive. Mm. So um, I focus primarily on two counterintuitive elements of Richard's appeal. Uh, the first one is uh, what I call his sinister theatricality, uh, which is characterized by what one of the characters in the play calls palpable 
devices. That um, means basically a palpable device is basically like an obvious trick. So he pretends to be nice, but then he sort of coyly reveals the malevolence that's hiding underneath the mask of benevolence. And it's that combination, I suggest, that's actually quite seductive to the other characters and to the audience. Um, and it's really fascinating the way that Richard is, the way that the other characters describe Richard as an emblem both of uh, the deceptiveness of appearances and, and the difficulty of judging a book by its cover. And also Richard is simultaneously an emblem of how appearances completely reflect the inner reality, right? Hmm. That his um, his 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 what they call his deformity uh, reflects his evil nature, um, and that's that's the sort of second thing that I argue that gets aestheticized in the play is Richard's deformity. That Richard offers his body as a spectacle for the audience, um, and uh, in the latter part of the chapter, I talk about how Richard's compelling demonic power is built up in the minds of the audience partly by the curses that other characters level against him, which describe him in terrifyingly vivid detail as a hideous monster and as a minister of hell. So after this really helpful um, exercise looking at Richard III, before we jump to the end of the century to to Paradise Lost, you you give us a very rich and a very complex and detailed account of of, of the popular press in the mid-century period, um, monster ballads, um, uh, uh, publications of all kinds of monstrosity or, or, or deformity, as uh, publishers and authors represented it. What did you What did you discover as you looked at that popular literature, and how did that popular literature um, feed into your thinking about sinister aesthetics? Right. This chapter was one the one major piece of the book's argument that did not exist in the dissertation at all. Um, and it was, I, I was a really, I was really glad to be able to add it in. It was a lot of work to put together because it surveys a lot of shorter texts mm-hmm. rather than focusing on a single big canonical work like Richard III or Paradise Lost. Um, the texts I focus on here are mostly sermons about divine punishment and broadside ballads and pamphlets about so-called monstrous births. Uh, those are human and animal babies that were born with what we would now call birth defects or physical anomalies of various kinds, um, some probably real and some perhaps fictional. And these so-called monstrous births were invariably presented in these texts as a form of divine punishment. And that's sort of, that's what ultimately kind of feeds into my discussion of Milton, but just to explain a little bit more, uh, for listeners who may be unfamiliar with broadside ballads, I like to describe them uh, when I'm teaching them uh, as sing-along tabloids. They were sold as single printed sheets, and a typical ballad might include uh, a title, a woodcut image, a one-paragraph prose description of the ballad subject matter, and then the ballad itself, which was a poem uh, with, with instructions to sing it to a well-known tune. And the subject matter varied, but it often included recent supposedly true events of a scandalous or fantastical nature, or accounts of unnatural occurrences like monsters and prodigies, which is what I'm focusing on. So these, these sermons, broadsides, uh, ballads, pamphlets, the, the, this popular literature, which is both printed and, and, and orally delivered, 
helps right. us think about the kind of audiences that were engaging with sinister aesthetics, doesn't it? It's not just uh, theatre goers. It's not just the very learned uh, readers of Paradise Lost when it eventually gets published. But there's there's a broad popular culture here, which is also vitally engaged with this question. That's right. Yeah, this was this was really spread throughout the culture, and I mean, theatre was reaching a pretty wide and uh, you know socially diverse audience already. But but this was definitely something that you know everyone was engaging with at at different levels. Uh, and part of the argument of the chapter is that it wasn't only secular dramatists like Shakespeare who made use of the sinister for sort of whatever titillation. Religious writers also employed sinister aesthetics, um, and they did so not only to describe Satan and demons or evil spirits, but also to describe God's punishments. So they're um, they're attributing sinister qualities to God himself. Um, and in doing so, they're trying to find an effective solution to the theological problem of evil. And one of the things I think you suggest in the latter part of the book, as you turn our attention to Milton and specifically to Paradise Lost, is that the question of genre is is vital for the way in which these problems could be addressed or even resolved, isn't it? That somehow Milton's turn towards poetry allows him to answer this question in a way that he might not have been able to do had he simply stuck to the writing of his left hand as he describes it, prose. That's right. Yeah, no, Milton's choice of epic poetry as a vehicle for these ideas is really crucial, although it's also tripped up Milton critics for a very long time. So they've kind of gotten the the argument about God and Satan in Paradise Lost has sort of been locked in this model where we're uh, looking at Milton the poet versus Milton the theologian. Um, And if you value Milton's poetry, then you like Satan and you dislike God. And if you respect Milton's religious beliefs, then you are supposed to like God and hate Satan. So if if we take your argument about sinister aesthetics into that debate between critics, what kind of resolution can we find? Basically, I argue that Paradise Lost is doing the same thing that the ballads and sermons are doing, but on a much grander scale. Milton understands that the problem of evil has an affective component, and that calls for a poetic response, and that's why he writes an epic about it and not just a theological treatise. So I I started this book, you know, because I was thinking about Satan's attractiveness, but um, in the final form of the argument, it's really, I'm really ultimately more interested in what Milton is doing with God. Uh, So, but but in, in my chapter on the first Paradise Lost chapter is about Satan, and I talk about how Satan does have this sinister appeal, but also a lot of the things about him that are appealing are not sinister. There's, uh, you know, moral virtues like his heroism, but there's also his aesthetic sensibilities in the in the poem are mostly not sinister. He appreciates beauty on uh, what I refer to as a normative level, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and that makes him very easy to relate to. And we sort of, I think we underestimate the, import- the importance of the aesthetic sensibilities of characters in in terms of how uh, how easy they are to relate to. But what we gradually see happening in the poem is that the more persistent manifestations of the sinister belong to God. Um, and the chiefest of these is hell, which Milton calls the universe of death, designed by God as a place of horror and eternal suffering. So Milton, I argue, actually tries to make God attractive in the way that Renaissance villains like Richard III are attractive. Hmm. So if, if Milton's project in Paradise Lost is to make 
Satan sinister, but also to make God sinister. What is he doing to the reader? What I think he wants to do for the reader is to provide the affective component of the Odyssey to sort of supplement the logical component. That is, you know, Milton's logical argument about uh, justifying the ways of God to man, which I take to be justifying the presence of evil and suffering in the universe, is uh, the argument that he uses is very old. It's called the free will defense, and it was articulated by Tertullian in, you know, like 200 AD. It's one of the earliest uh, additional arguments that we have in Christianity. So, and um, it's a it's a very powerful argument. It's an important argument to Milton, but it's not it's not news, and it doesn't take an entire epic to explain it. Right. You know what we need the epic for is to make us feel differently about God and about God's capacity for punishment and cruelty. And and Milton tries to use the sinister to get us to learn to love that part of God instead of being repulsed by it, as a normative sensibility would demand. Huh. Um, now, I, I should say that, uh, you know, I'm not arguing that Milton just presents God as this, like, villain. Um, the My real, uh, what I think is really going on with Milton's presentation of God is that God represents this fusion of Milton's, Milton's vision of God, uh, fuses kind of the light and the dark, love and punishment, and what I call normative and sinister aesthetic. So it's a chiaroscuro vision of God and of God's creation uh, that I ultimately trace back to uh, Augustinian uh, interpretive tradition. So that this is one of the reasons why it's so important that we see you moving back towards, or, or, or away from the very purest new historicism, back towards thinking about form, because ultimately your, your argument is an argument not just about aesthetics, but also about literary form and its impact upon the individual reader, isn't it? That, that, that we are somehow the subject of your book. Yeah, um, and, uh, you know, one of the critics that I engage with a lot in the Milton section is Stanley Fish, who, of course, is is one of the uh, big, um, you know, founders of reader response theory, Um, although I feel that Fish actually comes down very much on the sort of pro-God and anti-Satan side and, and very much wants to deny... Uh, not only what I'm calling the sinister, but also the importance of ultimately the, he wants to deny the importance of poetry and of having feelings about poetry. Well, Joel, we've taken up a lot of your time today, but before we wind up, can you tell us what impact you hope this book will make? With regard to Paradise Lost, I know I'm not going to end the Satan versus God debate, but I hope that I can offer some readers a path out of what seems like a pretty intractable critical dispute and offer a reading that accounts for the things that we might like about Satan or dislike about God, and that allows us to see the poem's engagement with the infernal in a new way. More broadly, I want people to better understand how representations of God's dark side are working in early modern England and what that says about religion in the period and and maybe in other times and places as well. Hmm. Um, And then most of all, I'm hoping that the concept of sinister aesthetics will give people a language to talk about how things that are supposed to be unattractive on moral or aesthetic grounds can be attractive on their own terms and produce distinctive pleasures. Right now, I feel like a lot of scholars have been struggling with the idea that that is even happening. Uh, some deny it. 
Some condemn it. Some are trying to describe it, but they're forced to rely on language that's paradoxical or oxymoronic. Um, I recently read a critic who described a scene in Titus Andronicus as disgustingly prettified, which I feel like sort of mystifies more than it explains. Um, So I'd love it if the model that I'm offering could help people get past all that and spend more time thinking about exactly how these relations representations are working. Um, And what I'm calling the sinister represents a pretty significant percentage of our total artistic output as a culture. So in that sense, there's a lot at stake. Well, it's wonderful. It's it's a great book, Joel. I learned a huge amount from it. Uh, It engages such a broad range of material. Uh, There's something here for so many people who work in this area. Um, I really hope so. Thank you for coming on to the show today. We really appreciate your time. And thank you for writing this book, Sinister Aesthetics, The Appeal of Evil in Early Modern English Literature, just published by Paul Grave. Thanks for your time and take care. Thank you very much for having me. And thanks to everyone else for listening. I'll see you next time on New Books and Christian Studies, a channel on the New Books Network podcast. With Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, We've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandslots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details.